Hello and welcome to Open Door Films, a podcast where I pretty much you had every intro and every opportunity to express how much I love movies and how much I love talking about them with whoever I can get on the podcast. And Bavon Kareem, my recent guest, was no exception. He was a truly unique individual, despite the fact that this was a rather short interview. And hopefully, within time, if I'm able to have Bavon on the podcast again, we'll be able to have the opportunity to talk more about movies and the process of making them. Bavon Kareem is a writer, director, as well as a film executive. He's also the founder of Cine, which is an international company that specializes in the finance, development, and production of feature films and television programs through a think tank of diverse executives, creatives, and educators spread all across the globe with a dedication to creating visionary films and while stressing the importance of equity, inclusivity, and authentic representation of visual storytelling. I realized that what I'm reading is the actual description of the company from LinkedIn, but what the hell, I can only go so far. And I feel I didn't go far enough with my interview with Bavon, given the short time we had to speak together. And yet, I found that time very valuable because I felt like I was speaking with someone who was truly passionate about cinema, and yet very, yet very self-aware about the difficulty of making true authentic storytelling as opposed to the more corporate market-based oriented model while still having an awareness of how the market operates. And we did talk about the market in relation to film in our conversation, as well as the importance of narratives, the passion behind creating cinema that speaks to the heart of the human condition, and the importance of, of authentic inclusivity as opposed to the more forced oriented that often can be very dangerous to the narrative of a film. As someone who loves storytelling, I do believe that every story should have an ideology, but I don't think ideology should ever trump a narrative because that that can destroy the nature of the message of a story. And I guess I'm just, the best way I'm putting it is, I think the narrative is what matters most. And Bavon felt the same way. We talked about, uh, well, we talked for about a lot of things in our conversation, despite it being rather short in comparison to prior interviews. But at the same time, as short as it was, I still found something valuable. And I hope I can from the next time we speak in the future. Anyway, pardon this, this stuttering, no, the stuttering in this interview and all the imperfection that comes from it. But you know what, at the same time, like any story, or any project I put my heart and soul into, there's always going to be a hint of imperfection. And I think that there's a beauty to that. Anyway, I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to the podcast. Check out my sponsors, being Fount- one of them being Fountain, where you can pretty much listen to your favorite podcast support and listen to your favorite podcast creators while-, while earning Bitcoin. It's no joke. All you have to do is just sign up for the Fountain app. You'll be able to find all your po- most, well, probably not all, but I mean, probably most of your favorite podcasts, and you'll be able to listen to them and earn Bitcoin while you listen to them. That's right. And you can even send Bitcoin to them via via streaming sats. I'll leave a link in the description down below. And you can also leave a link to my other sponsor, Anchor, which is a podcasting platform that allows you to create a podcast for free with no trouble at all, and it'll distribute it across all the major platforms like Apple, Spotify, Fountain, Lisbon, CurioCaster, Podfreeze, all your favorites. It's that easy. If you're looking to get your voice out there for podcasting, then there's no better option than Anchor because it'll help you spread that message on a much wider scale. 
Anyway, check out the sponsors Fountain, where you can earn Bitcoin just by listening to your favorite creators, and Anchor, where you can start getting people to listen to you and hopefully spreading both your message and the message of decentralization that comes with Bitcoin. Anyway, I've babbled on enough for this intro. Enjoy the show. And just letting you know, this is totally unscripted. And I, I mean, it's basically just an interview to just to know more about you since you're a filmmaker and just just help hopefully to get more people to know about your career, your work. And uh, so why don't you just tell us a little thing, a little bit about yourself. Well, my uh, career in creative arts began as a journalist around 20 years ago, first in San Diego and then with the Dallas Morning News. Mm -hmm. And I was able to cover sports, which was really my dream job. Uh, but, you know, I felt like my ability to tell a story was really limited by new the newspaper and newspapers in general were on the decline. <laughs> so I went to film school at that time and you know, I had some connections in film and, and commercial production in the Dallas area, so I'd always been interested. Um, and then the degree really helped me learn more about the industry and how producers work and path of plot to, towards success for myself. So, you know, my first project <laughs> was actually a documentary in Italy that our department chair was producing. So we were able to spend about a month in Italy and uh, shooting archaeological dig sites and then shooting the museum pieces that they would pull out of the earth. I produced some documentaries, um, released a TV show with a local radio host here, and then I moved to Los Angeles. I mentored under a very well-known gaffer who's a chief lighting technician on uh, films and television series. Mm -hmm. um, but my professors had always told me to think about teaching. So I'd also been applying for teaching positions. And then the last decade of my career was balanced between higher ed and entertainment. And in 2019, I relocated back to the West Coast and uh, since then have been focused on development and producing of uh, films and TV series. So that pretty much brings us up to speed where we are now. Uh, my company, the way it's structured, it's really a consultancy to bring financers and you know creatives and producers together to help films get made. Our uh, production arms that do narrative and documentary have been folded into the consultancy. So at this point, basically, um, what we do mostly is help network and move money around and kind of steer these projects from development through post-production. Basically, so we had our, oh, basically projects that wouldn't be considered mainstream, you mean? Uh, well, you know, it, it's interesting. Our first film was Gasoline Alley, starring Bruce Willis and Luke Wilson. So definitely a, a mainstream film. But, um, you know, our interest in that was primarily as investors. Because in order to make this company sustainable, in Hollywood, you need connections to talent, directors, you know, casting directors, different production services, post-production houses, producers, et cetera. So essentially what we did was buy our way into that through these first four films that we're financing. 
So we're hoping that uh, within the next five years, Cine will be completely sustainable and producing independent films. It's interesting that you mentioned that you used to work in journalism and you mentioned that even 20 years ago it was in a state of decline. And what are your thoughts on modern day journalism today? But, yeah, I think the landscape has completely changed since it's moved online and it's allowed some, you know, nefarious actors into the space. Uh, it's more on the end user now, the consumer of the content to mm -hmm. really use their discernment and try to determine um, if the content is legitimate, what's the source, who funded it, who stands to benefit. And, you know, to a degree, journalism has always been that way, but we've seen uh, an escalation toward biased content, especially with the rise of the fake news phenomenon. Yeah, so, it's, not yeah just, it's not just a trendy term anymore. No, not at all. What are your thoughts, though, on, the, on how journalism has gravitated more towards open so source spaces like Substack? Because I see now that with the, I mean, with the pessimistic outlook you've given on modern day journalism, it seems like a lot of journalists are moving over to some platforms like Substack. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, you see that as a positive for something bigger to emerge or? Oh, definitely. You know, my outlook on the industry may be negative to a degree, but, you know, I personally consume my current events through Reddit, which is another, you know, user maintained platform. So uh, there, and even then you, you have to be aware those sites are moderated to a degree. Uh, there is some content that's filtered out and then your internet provider you know based on your preferences is probably guiding content that you're more likely to consume and click on toward your feed so there are still um, some mitigating factors but i definitely think you know open source is a much better way for people to to find out what's going on in their communities than following mainstream media are, do you, are, are there any particular journalists that you not only like, but you think have somewhat pivot, pivoted this gravitation? I mean, oh. me, I always cite someone like Matt Taibbi as an, a perfect example, but I'm curious to know if there are any journalists that make you think in the same light. Um, not journalists necessarily, but activists. I think there are a lot of great activists. There's a young lady in Chicago her name escapes me at the moment i'm trying to google it to uh, see but basically she started uh, an artist collective in the chicago area that's focused on uh, they create you know textiles so mostly clothing it's a it's a fashion design kind kind of enterprise uh, but what she's doing is very interesting because it's a grassroots form of, you know, democratic movement and activism that she's pioneered through this arts collective. So those those are more the type of people that I try to follow uh, as as influencers rather than journalists. And in terms of the film projects you work on, I'm I mean I know you go wherever you can, but are there any types of projects that have always held an interest to you? Any types of narratives or stories or any genres? No, I'm, I'm most interested in stories of disenfranchised people, um, you know, and people of color and minorities trying to fit into hegemonic systems.
right? That those are the stories that interest me. But I think from a realistic perspective, what gets made is four quadrant family films, meaning and by four quadrant, I mean they hit four main demographics, which is male, female, young and old. So those, those types of family films. And then horror movies, which generally are made on a low budget and generate a high return. Mm. And then thrillers, right? That's what the market looks for. Uh, one of the reasons I've never directed an independent film is because there has to be a certain balance between the creative interest and the financial interests in order for a film to get made. So we're still on track to finding that balance. Uh, is there any type, is there anything you're working on right now that you would like to see in development in the future? Any, any film you're working on? Definitely. My partner, Noah Canavan, uh, he's one of my development partners at Cine. He has a wonderful story about uh, a 10 year old whose parents are going through a divorce. And so the father in a panic, you know, kind of whisks the boy away on a father son adventure, but he doesn't tell the mother about it. So it appears to be a kidnapping, but it's not, it's, you know, and it, that's one of those four quadrant family films based in the nineties, um, you know, invokes a lot of nostalgia. So I think there's tremendous potential for success. And in terms of the, the, the quadrant film that you mentioned earlier, do you think those demographics are very limiting in your ability to tell to tell stories or get the, pro the projects that you're more interested in? <clears throat> well, you know, not necessarily. I think you have to be realistic about the industry as a marketplace and then it, it being business focused, right? That superhero films are going to draw in the broadest audiences and that's going to dominate theaters, I think, right? At least for the next decade until Hollywood continues to make this adjustment. But there will always be a place for indie films, I think. Uh, there's a strong market for it. The, um, what, what's the festival circuit that thrives on independent filmmaking is still there as a support mechanism. And we see fantastic companies like uh, A24 and Bloomhouse that continue to scoop up indie films and put them on the larger market for audiences. So, you know, it's not a matter of limitations. It's a matter of, um, I think as a creative person or as an entrepreneur in the film industry, you know, can you find that sweet spot, a niche for your career and your work? Um, and, and, you know, you can cross over genres and find new audiences, but it's really, I think, a matter of your own creative identity more than anything else. And since you mentioned superhero films, because I've asked uh, other people I've interviewed their thoughts on the genre, because some people theorize that it might go the way, you all right? Some people theorize that it might go the way of the Western. And I'm just curious as to whether you share a similar sentiment. With me, I'm completely neutral because I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily believe history repeats itself, but I do think that there's more flair to that, the, the new adopted idea of history rhyming. And I'm just curious, as do you think, as to whether eventually superhero films will go in that sense? Because even now, the recent super comic book films I've seen there's something interesting about the approach they're taking. They're actually working as love letters to old cinema as opposed to just being replications 
of the same product. I mean, and when I say the same product, I mean something more Disney Marvel oriented. I mean, let's not, whether you liked the new Batman movie or not, you can pretty much say that that was a love letter to David Fincher in many ways. Mm, that's great, you know, great points. And that's a great analogy. And I agree, I did like the new Batman. I liked the darker take, the investigative aspects and the perspective on the character that we hadn't seen before as, you know, this kind of naturally conflicted person hasn't really discovered who he is yet as Batman. He doesn't even, he's not even multilingual like traditional versions. Yeah. He couldn't um, speak Spanish, which was, which was a surprise to me. Yeah. Um, but no, though, I think those are great points. You know, as far as superhero films becoming outdated, you know, again, I, I think that that will depend on audiences. You know, the sophisticated audiences that crave an artistic experience through cinema, really the process of discovery, mm -hmm. I think they will be exhausted by the saturation of superhero films. But there will always be uh, young people coming up who love to see their favorite characters on the screen. And there will always be people who seek uh, the movie going experience as a distraction from their daily lives. So I think that, you know, as long as that remains, there will be an audience for which producers to, you know, producers can sell superhero films too. Yeah. Um, but what I find interesting is the performances some of these actors are putting in, in the superhero films. I mean, in the last Spider-Man, uh, like they're acting their butts off. Yeah. And I think they are competing amongst themselves to see who can be the first to win a major acting award, an Oscar, for a portrayal of a superhero character and how much the Academy is really going to respect that. But, you know, at heart, I think, to answer your question, films are about the process of discovery for the audience, of new things being revealed through each scene and ultimately through the transformation that takes place in the story. Superhero films don't necessarily deliver that. We know who the characters are to a degree because we've seen them in so much pre-existing media. We know the good guys are gonna win and the bad guys are gonna lose ultimately. And I think that the undiscussed danger, if you wanna think about it, of superhero films is that they constantly reinforce the status quo. I mean, even in, for example, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, they had a character who was the black Captain America and he had been experimented on by his own government. Mm -hmm. And the way that they righted that wrong, quote unquote, was to give the black character uh, his own museum exhibit. There was no public acknowledgement of what had taken place. There was no, you know, reparation of that system, uh, no, um, they promised never to do it again. Right. They basically chicken shitted and they kind of, and I heard they did something similar in WandaVision, even though I, I've only seen a few episodes. I'm, I don't, I don't want to indulge in too many streaming services because I only just have two. I limit myself, but from what I've gathered and heard about the conclusion of WandaVision, she did something that pretty much bordered on psychopathy and they just forgave it. Right. So as long as the films, you know, 
constantly reinforce that the people with power are going to be the ones who are right, then I don't know if that's helpful for us as a society, as the people on the ground, working class per se, to be consuming that media and subconsciously, you know, agreeing to that. Just anybody who is in touch with reality, because some of the cop, some of my favorite, <clears throat> some of my favorite comics are heroes i would be i would be skeptical to see portrayed in in films like that i mean and they're not always the most moral but they are fascinating i mean let's face it as diverse as a film as watchmen can be people still more more gravi gravitated towards the character of rorschach because of the moral complexity he he and the rather nietzschean aspects he embodies to a, a sense that it gets you thinking. And it's interesting, also interesting that you mentioned the, whole, the Oscar aspect of these superhero films, because my brother told me that he believed that Willem Dafoe from um, the new Spider-Man film in his performance deserved an, a nomination. I, I'm, I'm not saying I agreed or disagreed with him so much as I was skeptical as to ever, that ever possibly happening for a Marvel Disney product, because just because I think even Hollywood executives or Academy members might hold some pessimistic outlook towards that because when it comes to superhero films and Oscar nominations, you see the ones that are more kind of, what's the term? It's a term in the comics world, other, uh, what's, God, other worlds, basically. Because you could say, uh, I don't know if, if you're a big comic book fan, are you? I'm sorry, I didn't realize you could hear me. I was speaking to someone else to let them know I'm on a call with you. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, are you a fan of comics? Yeah, I have a collection of my own. Well, there's this. I mean, obviously, you're, then you're probably familiar with the term other worlds, where basically you see a story of a character we've seen before, but it's a new interpretation, not continuity based. And it seems like only the superhero films that embody that spirit have a better chance of Oscar nominations. I mean, Heath Ledger's The Joker. <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker mm -hmm. and I'm not saying Robert Pattinson would get a nomination as Batman but I think I see there's a better chance of, of something like that as opposed to something more Marvel or Disney based yeah. I agree I, I agree I think one of the reasons uh, Joaquin Phoenix got that critical attention was because it was a film that fought like it put his character in the lead position and then allowed that character to transform and, you know, we saw the actor's talent, I think, with a Marvel film, because it seems to be so uh, collaborative, they bring in so many characters, it's going to be much harder to replicate that. But with an actor like Willem Dafoe in the right role with the right story, definitely, definitely they could win awards. I think it's a matter of time, you know, uh, generally, generationally, things tend to shift. And I think as you know, superhero films are more accepted uh, among members of the Academy, right? As the Academy shifts younger, um, it's more likely that we'll see, you know, somebody in that Joaquin Phoenix type of role win an, win an Oscar, yeah. I also think that because, I mean, this not, not to like trash the Academy, but even though my views on it have become pessimistic, especially because I don't watch the Oscars. I don't really care for trophies, even as a writer myself but i think the reputation of it is kind of dwindled not in negative sense it's just people gravitated towards it less and after the whole fiasco of this year who knows 
how much more cynicism will be attributed to it. But you never know if that's if the aspect of uh, the aspect of superhero film nominations could actually boost its reputation. I mean, even because I'm not saying that a lot of people who watch the Marvel Disney films are people with low attention spans, but they do have that sh fair share of an audience because some people have been conditioned to only watch these specific type of products that it wouldn't hurt the Academy certainly to capitalize on that and market that because it would definitely improve the amount, the, the trajectory of their audience. So I guess that's my view on it. And, uh, in regards, I guess, what, what was the other question I was going to bring up? Because uh, there are so many different questions. Have you collaborated with any of the prior studios you mentioned, like A24 or Blumhouse? Not yet. Um, our collaboration has been with a number of in smaller independent production companies that have made these films. Uh, Riot is one. Buffalo 8 is another. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are our smaller production companies. And are there, are there any particular films that you look to as inspiration for your creative process? Because since you work in independent film, and I know it would mean a lot for you to get your own work, a film of yours made. And I'm just curious if there's any filmmakers or, fil or just films in general that you turn to. Yeah, I, I mean, I love Scorsese and I, I know he's a popular choice, but that's my truth. Um, the films that we, you know, at our, our own writers in-house here seek to replicate are the 80s classics, um, mm. you know, Back to the Future, Goonies. Um, I loved Parenthood with Steve Martin. But those 80s family movies, because they provoke a sense of nostalgia in me and I love them so much, I want to create that same feeling for audiences who grew up, you know, uh, during my generation in, in the 80s and 90s and replicate that. So, oh, when it came, to, when you mentioned Scorsese, I don't think that because popularity really can be attributed to craft because. Let, I mean, I would love more people to know more about the work of William Friedkin, who is, to me, a, a master storyteller and just a, a director. I wouldn't say he's underrated. I just feel that he he isn't as appreciated as he used to be to a certain extent. And you said, and when you were mentioning the 80s, I looked back to films like To Live and Die in L.A., which is a perfect example of the type of movie I think that it rarely gets made now because it's not as safe as people would assume it would want it's such an incredible film too i love that you brought that up and the ending it's so unorthodox the fact yeah. that the main character is killed and you're left watching his sidekick essentially become him and you know um and and, and he's and you just and over the course over the course of because i've only seen the film once but i've watched analysis of it and uh one thing you learn is even though it follows the traject the narrative trajectory of some of a lot of cop revenge films of the cop getting revenge for his partner, you realize he's not doing it for his partner. He's doing it because he's a sociopathic adrenaline junkie who just likes it. And I mean, William Peterson, you look at him, he looks like the quintessential nice guy. I mean, he's got, he even has like a perm that makes him, I guess, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I, I, I guess it makes him look, Non-threatening. Non-threatening non and even 
naturally you would think he was friend a friendly person but the guy hell even the, the socially manipulative tactics he uses on his source i mean you'd have to be pretty honest with yourself of being a bad person to employ them that he'd be willing to take a child away and and the film doesn't condone but condemn him and he uses a lot of action metaphors to convey his moral decay i mean that car chase scene has been interpreted as basically that a symbolic representation of how there's no turning back for them yeah yeah and that i mean and i i love that the story structure supports that too you know one film that um when i think of uh, to live and die in LA, I, I also always think of a place beyond the pines mm. because it has that unorthodox structure, Darren's, Derek C. and Francis film, where you follow Ryan Gosling for the first half of the film and then he, he dies. And you see the consequences of his actions through these other characters. And there yeah. are. Yeah. I mean, my, I guess my personal fa segment of favorite segment, it's hard to decide whether I like Bradley Cooper or uh, Ryan Gosling's narrative more because they're, you think after it shifts to Bradley Cooper's perspective, you didn't know where the film was going, especially when even he's portrayed as a morally complex human being, but he was in a bad, just, he was just an equal, in an equally bad situation. What's another example of a film that takes a, sim, a similar approach to live and die at night? Well, I don't know if I would say it's, it's gained that much of a reputation yet. Did you see Destroyer with Nicole Kidman? Sure. I guess I bring that up because the, the director, Catherine Kusima, I hope I pronounced her name right, she mentioned how to live and die in LA was a major influence, which got me into the film. And then I look at, I recently rewatched Destroyer and it just, it feels like it's a film that's going to be appreciated over time. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I have to watch it again, but I have this feeling, this gut feeling inside of me because it's not about a perfect cop. Yeah. It's about a cop trying to achieve some sense of self-worth in herself, even at her own self-destruction. Yeah, I, I agree. It has that gritty aesthetic, and I think that audiences are going to look back on it over time and the performance, and, and it'll gain appreciation. That's how my friends felt about heat. You know, when I was in high school, I dragged my friends to see heat in theaters, you know, Michael Mann's cop epic. Mm. And it was three hours of talking in between these explosive action scenes. And I think everyone got bored and they walked out of the theater after three hours and they were like, that wow. was awful. Whose idea was it to see this? And I was so embarrassed, but now it's obvious how brilliant that film is. Yeah, because just like to live and die in LA and deconstruct so many moral aspects we assign to these characters. Because let's be honest, Al Pacino's character, you could say he's a good, he's trying to be a good person, but he's just a wolf hunting for his prey because he's an addict. And the same, and you did you know the story that Al Pacino, that they wrote a narrative for his character that he was a cocaine addict? But he used, not cocaine addict, someone who used cocaine frequently in the, at the character, Vince and Hannah just to function so he could keep on working the way he does because he's always on the hunt. And obviously Neil McCauley, the character played by Robert De Niro, you could look at him as a criminal, but I guess the best way of looking at, I don't really condemn his bank robbery because, because of one line in the movie, he says, we're here for the bank's money, not your money. Your money's insured by the federal government. 
-hmm. and they can just print more. And it's kind of ironic that a lot of bank heist movies don't, well, it's odd. It just, I like how it, it leaves it in a, in a way where you can judge for yourself. Are they, are these people, it's, these stories are not meant to be just good versus evil. It's yeah. too much moral complexity. I mean, hell, even with the dark night, uh, the ending when Batman tells a lie to hold society together, it would, it's easy to champion that. And the film only champion, but the film champions one aspect of his actions in that he took it, made a sacrifice. But at the end of the day, he was still behaving like a, he was not, he wasn't being a fascist so much as he was behaving authoritarian, but you have to also be empathetic in the fact that he was in a very tight situation. And I like these types of films that don't judge morally. They just look at the point neutrally. Mm -hmm. And do you feel that, that as time goes on, films of that approach will continue to be made? Well, again, you know, that I think is the essence of storytelling is finding an issue, right, that audiences are passionate about and then, you know, making it that process of discovery. So taking black and white issues and exploring the gray space, I mean, that's a great way to engage audiences through exactly those types of uh, values that you're describing, right? It's um, somebody like Rorschach who's morally sound, somebody like Batman who is willing to break the rules to get the outcome that he knows is right. I mean, those are the same uh, questions I think a lot of us face in our daily lives with, is it okay to lie to someone that you love because you love them and you don't wanna hurt them? So when we see that translated on the screen in these different ways, you know, yeah, that is, that is storytelling. Do you feel, I know this might be a little off topic or maybe because you, when it would sometimes it ingra this issue does ingrain itself in um, entertainment. Do you feel that, that the trend of cancel culture could be a threat to these kind of narratives because these narratives might walk a line that is too dangerous? I mean, I sometimes worry about censorship at times just because you might not say the thing people like to hear or even if it's even if it's inaccurate just silencing someone is a dangerous line for me to walk on. No, well I, th I think the majority of these films that are getting made they have a tremendous creative and legal interest behind them that is guiding the narrative in a way that is socially acceptable. You may have opinions from individuals on the media. And those opinions uh, are, you know, incompatible with our, our public values and, and what we know to be prurient and good. But, you know, if a studio is producing a film, then you know that their legal department has probably vetted every aspect of the narrative to make sure that it's gonna be socially acceptable. And do you see that as both in pot? Do you see it as a positive or a negative? Because, well, you know, it's interesting. I think that goes to the larger question of the purpose that cinema serves. And remembering that, you know, in a sense, the purpose of a government is to control people. And so many, you know, at the highest level, our media is very strongly tied in with the government. And I, yeah. I think. Top Gun is a great example of that, that, you know, if you want to use military hardware or incorporate the military into your story, well, there's a branch of the Pentagon that will read your script and evaluate it 
And if you have a pro-military narrative, then you can get tremendous discounts, like a helicopter that would cost you $3 million to rent for a day, you can get for like 30 grand. Um, so telling the right story can be beneficial to the right people. And that's something, you know, definitely that audiences should consider when they think about are the narratives we're presented in the stories that we watch limited? Why do characters always solve their problems with violence? And this goes back to superhero movies. In superhero movies, we see complex scientific problems that involve time travel and, and multiple universes. And those problems are solved by punching people in the face. Well, how does that make sense <laughs> on a realistic level? It's worth questioning those things, I think. Oh, yeah. With Top Gun, I could, well, well, I didn't stop watching it out of disgust or because I, I try and take, I take politics out of narratives. I understand that people have a job to do and some stories are not as simplistic, but I just got bored of it because frankly, I look at the first Top Gun and I watch and I see a very outdated film that I don't, I don't know how it would be received today if it was released for the first time. I mean, the first one, not that I haven't seen the new one, so I can't make a judgment call, but and I guess, uh, but then again, the storyteller could be good that they're still able to get that military tech and still say something that is counter to the incentives of of the government. Because I think a perfect example is the misinterpretation a lot of people had of The Dark Knight Rises. People assume it was some anti-working class film, which was the most ridiculous criticism I've ever seen. Just because Bane, the villain played by Tom Hardy, is portrayed pretending to be this leftist revolutionary but it seemed like all the people that went on the attack on the, the attack of it of being anti-working class forgot that he was pretending to be a revolutionary that he was pretending to be this anti-central banking revolutionary when really he was just gonna he was just a, nihil, a nihilistic sociopath who wanted to show the world uh, uh, how a metropolis like Gotham City which is clearly, a representation of all the major cities in the United States fall. I know I gave a really long answer, but I guess that's the way, the best way I phrase it, because I just feel that nowadays because of cancel culture, we live in narrow where one, anything could just become a major issue. And it just, it gives permission for all forms of censorship that is alarming. Yep. It's definitely, you know, it's definitely true. I'm about out of time. Oh, don't, don't worry about it. Thank you very much for giving me your time, Bavon. Uh, I briefly, I mean, I want to thank you for the time you've given me today. And uh, I just wanted to know where can people find you and learn more about you? I mean, just so I can add it in the descriptions for this podcast. Oh, well, you know, our website is cineic.com. It's C-I-N-E-I-C, which is Cine International Companies. That's our consultancy. Hmm. so can visit us online and all of our contact information is there okay i'll be sure to include that and uh i'm just as a brief one i mean what advice would you give to anybody who's young and eager to get into film you know if you're passionate about it immerse yourself in it surround yourself with other people who love filmmaking and make films you don't necessarily need to go to film school or um to you know, uh, 
pursue validation. If you really love it, just, you know, try to make a movie with your friends and see where your interests lead to. Okay. Well, again, Bhavan, thank you very much for giving me your time. And if you ever want to be on this podcast again in the future at some point, please feel free to, to message me on LinkedIn and uh, let me know. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Oh, it's no problem. You have a nice day. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.